You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Today is an awesome day. Why is it an awesome day? Well, uh, we're reading from Scripture. That's why it's an awesome day. And we're in Esther, and we've been reading through Esther. And for five weeks, Esther has been rough. We've been seeing evil just win over and over and over again. But then last week, we heard what happened in chapter 6. And chapter 6 was sort of the tipping point. Things flipped almost instantly from the evil towards the good. And we, we are here today in chapter 7, and we will be seeing how this is now Esther's moment. This is a moment for Esther to do what she is called to do by God. And we see in chapter 5 that Esther had this moment already, but she didn't grab hold of it. She seemingly delayed. Esther, who knows why she delayed, especially after being told twice in the same day by the king, hey, whatever you want, I'll give you. Just tell me. But she ended with... Uh, with deciding to extend that period and say, hey, I want to I, I do this again for you. I want to do another feast, and then I promise I'll tell you what I need. This is uh, an unfortunate thing and also a fortunate thing. Both are good, right? And I'll, show, and I'll explain why. We have Esther coming up in chapter 7 and what she will do, and we've just left the picture of Mordecai and Haman. Haman, who was blessed beyond any other man, and yet, as Lucas reminded us, was an addict to fame. His drug was fame and desiring that everyone would notice him. And because of one man, Mordecai, he could not find joy. Not only was, is it funny that it's just this one man, but it's, he didn't even know he existed beforehand. It had to be the other servants telling him, hey, there's this guy Mordecai who's not bowing. Check it out. And then he noticed him, and then he was angry. But he was happy before then. He was second in control. And we leave with Haman having to honor the one he wanted to destroy. He was fully shamed. While he desired death, God gave life. And while Esther delayed, unknowingly she put the life of her father figure of Mordecai in danger. He could have... Uh, that period of time, Haman exiting, being happy, and then seeing Mordecai again, Mordecai was probably still, uh, he was still mourning for the Jewish people, for the edict that had been passed. She see, she, uh, she, or he sees him, and he has hatred once again. This man that does not bow down, even after the edict was passed, still this man is standing strong. And he loses all that joy that he just had. All of that wonderful joy from being invited to be with the king and the queen. To have, to have this banquet. Well, now, uh, he decides to kill Mordecai because his wife gave him this great idea. Kill him. Well, it's a problem. Um, it was bad advice. It was bad advice. While everyone was showing their weaknesses and their sin and folly and brokenness, that's when God stepped in. He is now written, right? His name is not written, and we've heard that every single Sunday. You won't see Yahweh written here. You won't see Adonai. You won't see Lord. You won't see God. But he is so present in chapter 6, and he'll be present going forward. And that's often how our lives are. We live our lives not noticing that God is doing greater things than we, we think are going on. And we live in fear sometimes. But if Esther was like Gehazi, with, uh, with Elisha, when the army surrounded them, when she was with, that, with the king that first night, if she knew what God was already doing, she would have had boldness probably. But God used her weakness, and in her weakness, he made the judgment even more secure for what was necessary. So what I, what I want to do here before, before we... I don't want to go through the whole uh, chapter 7, but I'd like to go verse by verse. And before we go verse by verse, I want to point out three different characters that we'll notice um, through, through chapter 7. We see the illustrious coward. The illustrious coward. 
Why do I say illustrious? Well, Haman's name in Persian means illustrious or magnificent. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the, uh, uh, the little secret as to why I used illustrious and who this actually is talking about. But uh, as, as Lucas pointed out last time, we can see ourselves in Haman. And I think we can see ourselves pretty clearly in Haman. Uh, if, like he said, if you want genocide, that's an issue. But uh, it could be argued that he wanted more than that, and we'll, we'll touch on that. But the coward, what is a coward? And I want us to, to know this so that we can find ourselves in Haman during this, this, this chapter. I don't want us to miss the point. But a coward is spineless. He is self-serving, or they are self-serving. You may, you may be a, a woman out there. Uh, they will sacrifice anyone to protect themselves. They naturally choose deception over truth, and they do not have an identity that is firm, but become whatever is required to get what they want. They serve only themselves and are the most cruel of judges. With others, of course, because those that pose a risk to them, who cares? They're worthless. And they feel entitled to mercy when their sin is revealed. They are soft with themselves as judges, very soft. Now, who are people like this? The Bible is riddled with them, unfortunately. Abraham prostituted his wife in Egypt, and then he got goods from it. And then, literally, another man married his wife and uh, for the sake of protecting his own life. And then he did it again with Abimelech. By the way, it's, it's, I mean, there's also some foolishness wrapped in there, but definitely cowardice, cowardice. We can go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, and we find Adam being an absolute coward, hiding from his sin, not, not wanting to, to face his sin, but... He, uh, he wanted to hide. He, wanted, he, he was seeking to hide from the responsibility of what he'd done. There's already cowardice being exemplified. We see it in Peter uh, denying Christ three times, right? He was a disciple. His identity was pretty clear. But yet, when it came to his life, you know what? I'm something else. It's not me. Don't kill me, please. I'm a coward. Pilate, a coward. He killed the most innocent man for the sake of having a form of peace. And the Pharisees, cowards. The interesting thing is where you find a lot of cowardice, you will find injustice in heaps and loads. There cannot be justice where men and women are cowards. Justice is only found when men stand up and women stand up for the truth. Amen? Well, um, there's another character, the powerful fool. We, know, we probably know who this is. Uh, but just to make it clear, powerful fool, the king. King Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, however you say it. Xerxes uh, is the other name. A little easier. Or Ahasuerus. Uh, this powerful fool, what, what is a fool? Well, he's a fool. There's so many things about foolishness in the Bible. Uh, I could spend just the whole sermon reading over and over and over what a fool is and what a fool does and how horrible it is to be a fool. Um, but you sort of pity the fool. If you, if you know what that, what that means. Uh, <clears throat> the fool is, is an intemperate man. He is given to excess. He hates instruction. He flees from knowledge. He seeks the path of least resistance. He lays claim to knowledge and wisdom, but has none and will return to his own vomit over and over. Even experience will not be his teacher. He is a bottomless pit seeking pleasure and gratification. And if he is found in positions of power, it is not acquired by merit. He will often be surrounded by a host of cowards. Nothing serves the coward more than the powerful fool. And the powerful fool thinks he's being served by the coward. A wonderful relationship that they have. Well, there's one more person, and that is the faithful servant. Just to break it to you, you probably are not the faithful servant if you're trying to find where you are in this, in this passage. Uh, we are most likely the coward, or most definitely the coward and the fool. Now, we go in and out of these different horrible titles, and sometimes we really work hard and we are both coward and fool. Um, but the faithful servant is different. He does not cut corners or she does not cut corners. They will endure pain and face risk to do what is best. The servant is humble and merciful, seeking the good of all those around them. And there is no deception on their lips, but they are characterized by truth. 
Their identity is well-defined because they know who they are. And because they know who they are, they do not crack under the pressure of others. Wherever you find a humble servant and a faithful servant, you will find peace and blessing. Now, these, this humble servant, um, I, would, I would say a good picture of this humble servant would be Mordecai here in, this, in these passages. Um, and Esther is working to fill, to become that. And often uh, that's where we find ourselves as well, in Esther. But now that we have these three characters, I want us to remember them. And as we walk through these chapters, see ourselves in them. See ourselves how we fail, how we are cowardly, how we are foolish, and how God is faithful. Amen? So let's go ahead and start. Uh, I'll start in chapter 7 now with, with verse 1. And it starts... Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. So this is just after he had been shamed. He has now gone back to his house. He is crying to his wife and to his wise men. Look what happened. I, I tried to kill Mordecai, but now I've been humbled. And, and interesting enough, his wife, as was mentioned last time, said, uh, hey, surely you're going to fall before him if he is a Jew. He is a Jew. Interesting, interesting portion. And now he is brought. He doesn't go like he went earnestly in the morning to go try to kill Mordecai. Rather, the eunuchs are there and they're grabbing him and they're saying, it's time to go. It's time to go. And there's some meaning behind this as well, this, uh, this rushing to go there. But uh, we'll, we'll touch on that as well. The king and Haman, it says, came to drink wine with Esther. Well, unfortunately... This is not a good thing here. We, we, we read here, they came to drink. This specific word drink, not that I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but, but you can look at the, at, the, at the underlying words and try to understand them, but the word drink is used over and over and over again in Esther. They drank wine and they feasted and banqueted, but often what you see for the word drink is feast. It can also mean feast, and often it's interpreted feast, because in the, in the same verse, the next verse that we're going to read in verse 2, which we don't have to turn to yet, it actually says, and they drank wine and, uh, at the banquet, and, or, and they feasted. Uh, or if it, what is it exactly? It says they drank their wine at the banquet. Really, it's the same word there, banquet and drink. It's the same word. They, they banqueted on wine and at the banquet, or they feasted on their wine at the feast. But here in the beginning, it says they drank their wine with Queen, with Queen Esther. The, the writer wanted to make clear here, they're drinking, okay? They're drinking, and this is the primary probably thing they're doing, and they're doing a lot of it. And the stress of everyone in the situation, maybe other than the fool who doesn't know what's going on, um, but they're getting drunk. They're drinking a lot. Well, uh, this may be for multiple reasons, and I'll touch on them. But we know that drinking is not a wise thing to do, specifically for anyone in authority. In Proverbs 31, it says, It is not for, queen, for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire intoxicating drinks. Otherwise, they will, or, or to drink intoxicating drinks. Otherwise, they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the needy. So the king is already starting off wrong. He's drinking a lot. And it, we see over and over again that even while all of Susa is in confusion and chaos, Haman and the king are drinking. Uh, they're, they're enjoying life, uh, even though they're causing absolute brokenness around them. Um, the two different words that, that we see here are shata and mishta, just so that you guys have them to write down. Shata is almost always written as drink. Uh, once, very occasionally, rarely, it's said as feast. But the other, mishta, is almost always feast or banquet, and they can use it as drink. Now, why does it say Esther is also here drinking? Well, she already failed once, and she's invited them to this, uh, to this, new, uh, to this other banquet, and now she's got to say something. Um, and it's very possible it's a little bit of liquid courage for her. She's drinking as well. Maybe she's drinking a little bit too much. Who knows? Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. That's just speculation. But uh, the pressure must have been great. I can't imagine the butterflies, the nausea, the fear that must have been stirring in her heart, in her guts, as she was getting ready to do this thing. 
Her people and herself were going to face annihilation, and the greatest ruler on the planet is standing in front of her. A man that got rid of his last queen for a simple thing, a foolish thing. Obviously, she's expendable if she looks at that. She probably, she spent time with these other beautiful women in the harem, just absolutely wonderful. Who knows, there are probably smarter girls than her. Uh, she, she could have seen this wide gamut of girls, and she thought, I'm not even deserving of this position. But God had placed her in this position. So she knows, hey, I'm easily replaceable, and I have to place myself in a precarious situation. I have to step between the king, and not this edict, but the king and Haman, his favorite guy. If you're guys and you have a boy that you hang out with all the time, you know, you work out with, he knows everything, you trust him, it's, it's this guy. You got to step between it, right? And uh, that, that's hard for her. That's someone that he had placed great trust in, very great trust in. So she knows uh, there's a possibility of things going wrong. So she's, she's enjoying her drink as well. And you have the illustrious Haman. Haman is there, once again, blind. Very weird, if you think about it. How does he not realize, I keep getting invited to these feasts. Shouldn't my wife be invited with me? Why am I the only one here? Why does the queen have something to ask of the king and she's not going to say it? Um, and she wants me to be there? I'm probably not involved. I'm just, I'm so great that she wants my presence there. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty wonderful. And at this point, he didn't have time to really get ready. He was taken. The eunuchs went and got him. He had been busy all last night. He's probably dead tired. He's ashamed. And now he's there, and there's wine? Oh, man. Well, the other portion of, of Proverbs uh, 31, it actually says, Give intoxicating drink to the one who is perishing and, the one, and a wine to, to one whose life is bitter. Let him forget about his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Wine is good at that. And, man, he is having it probably. He's like, ooh, I'm going to forget this morning. And who cares? Because Annihilation Day is coming. I may not have gotten Mordecai now, but Annihilation Day is coming. One day, my, my joy will be fulfilled. I'll be able to, to kill this annoying thing that is in front of me every day, this uh, ashy thing, because he's mourning. <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 he's, he's probably just drinking like, like crazy. Uh, and the pressure he doesn't quite feel. He's probably not feeling what, what, and he's not even noticing what's going on with Esther in her heart. But it's even possible the eunuchs that grabbed him, because we'll see later, the eunuchs got some information somehow. But the eunuchs that grabbed him to take him to the dinner probably saw those gallows, these massive gallows that weren't there before as they're walking towards his house. And now they're like, they get there and they're like, hey, where's Haman? And one of the servants takes him to Haman. But while they're walking, they're like, what is this thing? And they're like, oh, that's, that's for Mordecai. Uh, the plan is that he hangs up there. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> let's, take, let's, take, uh, let's take Haman over. So it's very possible Esther would have heard this from the eunuchs. The eunuchs may have been, the eunuchs were definitely more in the know than the king. The king knew, I don't know what the king knew. He was, he was a fool. It seemed like everything had slipped his mind. Um, but the eunuch may have very well told Esther, hey, guess what? Haman is planning to kill your your uncle. And now she has this pressure on her, and she's thinking, if I just said something yesterday, this wouldn't be the situation, but now I'm stuck. Now I, I have to do something. I have to do something. But either way, Haman's far too comfortable, and he is far too blind, and this is where we find ourselves. They're drinking. Verse 2, we go to verse 2, and we see here, and the king said to Esther on the second day also, so this is their second banquet, but this is the, the third time he's repeating himself. And he says, On the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your request, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your wish? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Man, what an awesome husband. What an awesome king. He's willing to give half the kingdom to his queen. I mean, this is wild. Who would do such a thing, right? But really, this isn't exactly an offer, but it's a grand gesture. It's like, hey, you can have what you want. Tell me. It can't be more than half the kingdom, but I'll give it to you. It's a nice offer, I guess, if, uh, if you're a fool. Why do I say that? Well, 
it is the reply of the fool, and the Bible says it clearly in Proverbs 18, verse 13. It says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. It is foolishness. He hadn't even heard what Esther was going to ask yet, but he's saying, I'll give it to you. You put yourself in a precarious situation there. We have another situation where that happened, and a, a, a man's head rolled. Remember John the Baptist? Over a young, dancing girl. And I'll give you everything. And she just wanted the head of the righteous man. Pretty wild. It is foolish to answer before listening. We as Christians need to, need to understand that and make sure we are critical in the way that we, we, we live this life. We hear everything, and then we make an informed and wise decision. Now, we spoke about Esther being fearful and how in the first time she delayed it because of probably that fear and anxiety, but God was working in a miraculous way, and if she would have seen how wonderfully God used her weakness to bring about what's going to happen, it's, it's wild. She wouldn't have even been afraid, but God uses our fear sometimes in our failure. But why was she afraid? Remember, the first time she said it twice, or he said it twice. King, King uh, Ahasuerus said it twice. I will give you anything you want. But now this is the third time. Like, man, he's, he's pretty much saying, it's not changing. I'm telling you now, anything you want, just tell me. But I, I think she's still afraid. Why? It's because what I believe she is asking is more than half the kingdom. And we'll touch on that. Let that sink in and think about it. Verse, uh, verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Oh, I'm sorry, verse 3. <laughs> I'm going ahead of myself. But the Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my request, and my people as my wish. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and eliminated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have kept silent because the distress would not be sufficient reason to burden the king. Wow, Esther is good with her words. Points it, she puts it very nicely. Um, if I have found favor in your sight and if it pleases the king, yes, you have favor. Yes, it pleases him. He's already told you. But she is being so just sweet. And she's saying, hey, someone wants to kill me. I can't imagine the king's thought process right now. Already he's like, well, whoever wants to kill you, this is it's ridiculous. I'm the king. Why would they want to kill you? And her people, as my wish. Who would dare attempt any of those things, right? And she says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and killed and eliminated. And what are these words? These are the exact words written in the edict that Haman wrote. Exactly. So Haman, by this point, may have been catching on, but if he was drunk enough, he was probably like, huh, coincidence. Possibly not, though. He may, he may have caught on. The king seems that he's still just in total, he's in la-la land. He has no idea what he did or what, what happened. Once again, remember, this, what she's asking here may seem to us like something that is not great, something that is pretty simple, but it's not. It's, very, it's a very great request, and the king does not know it yet. But then the king answers in verse 5, and he asks the queen, Who is he, and where is he, who would presume to do such a thing? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. The Haman then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. So obviously, the terrifying thing wasn't there before when he heard his own edict being being spelled out. Now all of a sudden he heard, hey, my name, and she's saying I'm a foe and an enemy. Uh, this is bad. Terrif I mean, he must have been utterly terrified. You know, um, it's always scary to be before power. I think the scariest thing is to be before a powerful fool. And for Haman, it was a great gift, but now he's, he's just realized something has shifted and things are getting bad. Ultimately, in reality, now that the king heard this as well, he hear a people being killed, they want to be annihilated, and it's Haman who's at fault. By now, he probably also caught on. I remember these words. 
or I remember, I remember Haman talking about some people, some evil people, and I think he wanted to get rid of them, right? Just annihilate them. Yeah, okay, it instantly clicked for him, most likely. But we see here that evil has been revealed. Proverbs 26, it says, Though it's ha- his hatred covers itself with deception, his wickedness will be revealed in the assembly, and the one who digs a pit will fall into it, and one who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. This is Haman, exactly Haman, doing things in secret, his hatred brewing inside of him, um, and he covered himself with deception. He'll seem like a good guy, right? But eventually the wickedness is revealed in the assembly, which means public. Everyone got to see it. And not yet, but it will be. It will be. So remember, uh, now that the king knows what's sort of going on, all of a sudden this drinking king this foolish, intemperate king, um, he gets up in his anger. He was drinking wine and went into the palace garden. So, can't imagine what's going on in the king's head now, but uh, there's a lot going on. He, obviously, his anger is just probably directed towards Haman at this point. He's drunk too, so his thoughts can't be very clear. Or he's, he's been drinking, his thoughts can't, can't be too clear. He wanted to get away from everyone and into the palace garden. He's thinking, I have to think more clearly about what I'm going to do about this situation. This is my second in command. So this is where we get to the point. He is now uh, realizing the weight of Esther's request. Why? Why is this greater than half of his kingdom? What is going on here? What she was asking for is something pretty wild. I don't know if you know about the Persian kings at the time, but they were not merely kings. They were treated as gods. But what she was asking, we won't even, I won't say yet, but there's, there's a curious point to this God thing. Persian kings want to be gods. The pharaohs called themselves gods. Everyone wants to be a god. And kings have enough power that they can sort of claim to be a god, and you sort of got to listen and worship. Um, but is it of any curiosity to us that in both Daniel and in Esther, the same thing is repeated, where it says, the laws of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. Remember when he wrote the law, and uh, th- this was a law written by their own rules, which means once a king writes something, you can't pull it back. It's forever. That thing is happening. So whatever is written is happening. Now, what kind of law is that? Uh, that's a horrible type of way to do a system. But if you have a certain thought process going on, well, the king is a god. Okay, he's writing the laws. He has the signet ring, right? You would think he's responsible with it and keeps it on his own finger. We found out this king isn't. He gives it to other people because he's the fool, right? He seeks the easiest path of resistance. Oh, you got an idea? Go do it. You got an idea? Go do it. And that, that seems to be the just common way that he rules. But in order for a rule or law to be this way, it must be perfect. So what they're saying is the reason it can't be revoked is because it's perfect. Why is it perfect? It's coming from a perfect king. He's a god. These are perfect laws. They can't be revoked. Now, at the same time, these, these, these laws being written this way also help a king be more temperate in the way that he writes things. But we know we have a foolish king. And he probably believes everything that is being said about him. Remember, he doesn't know who he is. A fool doesn't know who he is. But you tell him who he is, and he'll believe you. He'll believe you. And he, and he is that God. So what she is asking is for a self-proclaimed God to step down and become man. That's what she's asking right now. An attempt to revoke the earlier edict would strip him of his deity pretty much, which he had none to begin with. Let's not get it wrong. This act would create even more confusion and chaos with, uh, than the first edict did. And every edict going forward would be scrutinized. Every person would be like, okay, so the first one was wrong. What's to say this one isn't wrong? There's, there's, we, we can't trust you anymore the way we used to trust you. We, we knew who you were. You were God, King, Aswaris, and now you are Man, King, Aswaris. There's, there's a difference, right? <clears throat> but the king did not seek to lose control or trust. Um, the king did not seek to serve his people. He wanted to be served by his people. And the request, only, uh, the request puts the whole kingdom at risk in this situation. It, 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 he, would have to, he would have to humble himself. 
That is impossible for this guy. And it not only breaks down uh, possibly his position of power, the kingdom itself creates divisions, but uh, him having to revoke this thing that he wrote, um, it would also destroy every thought of grandeur that he held about himself. It would demolish it. He is no longer a king. He's realizing why he's out in the garden. I am a God king, and yet I am the weakest of men. He, with the greatest army and kingdom on earth, not only cannot protect his own queen, but leads her to her own death and now can't do anything about it. He, imagine the anger stewing about Haman. I am a king and he, he's made me a man. I have no power. I am powerless, a flailing fool. Imagine this anger. He's already given to anger and he's drunk. He can't even try to save face. Um, if he reveals, right, as we talked about uh, to the people, that this edict was not his own, and someone says, hey, Haman stole this, and, and he did this, he try, tries to twist things around, um, it, would, it would instantly be like, hey, you are the most unwise king ever. Haman did this to you? The one that you raised up and put next to you in power? The one that you trust with everything? This is who you put here? You are a fool. He becomes a fool. There is no right answer. There is no right answer here. This is the greatest predicament he's found himself in, and it was made by his greatest servant, by his greatest prince. Now, her request reveals his powerlessness, and he must come to terms with that powerlessness, but he will not. He will not. We read going forward, and it says, But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. So this was clear. She, he wasn't angry just in, in the situation. He was looking probably at him with evil intent, uh, probably murderous thoughts. And he's like, I am done for. Um, the queen and the king are against me. And Haman knows this face. How does he know this face? He probably had the same face after the last banquet when he saw Mordecai. Desire to kill this man. That makes him look like a fool. That, that keeps him from uh, becoming what he ultimately wants to be. He wants to be the God King. We see it in his request, right? How does one honor someone? Uh, and he said, uh, make me look like a king. He thinks it's him, but really it ends up being Mordecai. His cowardice is laid out. Haman, like we said, the name that means an illustrious one or magnificent, he is the second king, he is the second to the king, higher than all the other princes, finds himself begging, he is begging for his life from what was just a few months ago, a young orphan Jewish girl. And he is not ashamed to do it, surprisingly. <laughs> Pretty okay with, uh, with crumbling down. Why? Because he wants to protect himself. This prideful man is not really prideful. He's a coward. He's a coward. Haman would have seen Mordecai wailing bitterly, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, after that edict, and even probably after that first banquet. And he would have seen the chaos going around him, and he would have had no mercy. And he had no mercy. And now, this cruel, ruthless judge is requesting, mercy, please, forgive me, do something for me, save me. Have you ever been this coward? Have you ever been harder on others than on ourselves? Pretty common. I can tell you on myself being a coward many times. And it's shameful. Extremely shameful. But if we do find ourselves as cowards, and if we've seen the cowardly things in our lives, mostly because we have, uh, we have forgotten who we are and who we serve as Christians. And when we forget who we serve, we begin to serve ourselves usually, and that is when we, we do things that are uh, not, not, not in line with what Christ would have intended for us. Now, attempting to point the light at someone else, he points the light on himself, and the light purifies all things. There are, there, there are situations, and maybe some of you have seen them even at, at work or in any kind of environment where there's power, there's a power dynamic. Someone doesn't like someone else. They feel they're better than someone else and they say something about someone else, and now all of a sudden, the manager or the boss points the light at them, and they're like, hey, you're worse than him. 
yeah, I think you're going to get fired. This guy, I sort of like. Uh, I know he does some things, but you, man, you're just a twisted individual. Because you're blind. The coward is blind. And now when the light is shined on him, nothing more disgusting than a coward. A, a fool as well. And the prideful. Sin is the most disgusting thing. Amen? And that is why we have to expose it. And as Christians, we're called to expose sin. Not only in our lives, but, in, but when we see it being blatantly pushed around us. We do not stand quiet, but we expose it to the light. And we call out that sin is happening so that they can't just revel in it. They have to face it. And we, go, uh, we move forward now at, to verse 8. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where he had been drinking wine, once again, they have to mention, they were drinking wine in this place. It's important. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Boom. <clears throat> the, last sight, the last sight Haman saw was the king's wrath and who knows what else, maybe Esther, uh, as he was falling on a couch with her. But now it says, uh, it says he returned. So he had thought, and he's probably, in a, he's probably struggling. The king is probably struggling, realizing what predicament he's in, and that really, um, what can he do? What can he do to Haman? Uh, very difficult to do anything because it, impl- it implicates him. His name was on that edict, not Haman's. So you're killing Haman because you wrote an edict? That would be the question, right? That makes no sense. Uh, but this falling, man, this falling happened perfectly. He comes back and Haman is falling on Queen Esther, almost like he says it looks like assault, possibly sexual or whatever it was. Either way, it was maybe filled with hatred. This assault was going on. And he thought, oh man, he's assaulting the queen in front of me. The same person that was said that he wanted to kill her and kill her people. And now he's doing it in front of me. Some, some, some sources, I believe it's uh, some Jewish sources that I was reading, said that some even believe that this was an angel that pushed Mordecai at the right time to fall on to Queen Esther. But let me tell you what it was. It was probably tipsy. Drinking to forget. Remember, they were drinking, and now they're in the place of drinking wine. And everyone was drinking, and drinking is just happening all the time. And he is probably tipsy. And he is so overwhelmed by the fact that he is probably headed for the gallow, or probably headed for death. He doesn't yet know where, but it's coming. Um, he's just asking like a, like a pitiful coward for forgiveness. And I've done that. I've done that before. But I serve a king who is not afraid to leave his throne and become a man and die for me. Unlike this king, who wouldn't dare do that. When Esther asked, he's not going to do that, and he won't do that. So what, what, what happens here? Well, the falling, he fell on her. He was probably drunk, and the king also was probably intoxicated. This is just how I, I view this, intoxicated, drinking a good amount, and it just perceived that way, that she was being assaulted. And because he didn't know what to do, this gave him the perfect reason to kill him. And what's interesting is his eunuchs threw that thing over his head so quickly he didn't even finish talking. Let me tell you, those eunuchs probably didn't like him. And they probably already have seen the king that way. And they know what's happening. His anger and wrath is going to be pointed somewhere. They know it's pointed towards Haman. One nudge the other, go get the bag. The guy runs, gets the bag, and they're ready. They know. They know what's coming, just like Haman knows what's coming. Death. And when the king comes back, as he's talking and, and saying, this evil guy, uh, he, they take this this bag and put it over his head. And what's funny and, and ironic, it is ironic, because just earlier, when he shouldn't have been ashamed, but he should have been, he should have been glorying and praising that there is a man that saved his king, his God king, and he, has given, he was given the right to declare this to the city in Susa. Look, this is the man that the, the king desires to honor. Why? Because he saved the life of the king. What shame is there there? There should have been rejoicing from Haman. But no, he covers his head. Why? Because he's ashamed and he runs home. And you know what that was? That was God being merciful to Haman. Revealing things that 
who he was and who Mordecai was. But he was so blind. And now a bag had been placed over his head and he did not want his head covered. When he should have been ashamed for what he did, he doesn't want his head covered. Don't cover my head because I know what covering my head means. The end. The end. This is ultimate shame. So irony on irony, it's over and over. We see how God is working in these wonderful ways and and bringing about an end that Esther would have never thought. And they covered his face, and we see in verse 9 that Harbona, one of the eunuchs who stood before the king, said, Behold the wooden gallows. So, man, they must have been huge. Behold the wooden gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. Now, these gallows, some people just want to take it for face value. They could have been just actual gallows, gallows that you can hang someone on. Some people say, hey, this wasn't a common practice. It's possible that um, they were nailed on it. It's possible that they were impaled on it. So either way, not good. Not good for Haman. It is the end. And you see what happens. This is what happens when God shows us mercy and gives us a time to repent, and we don't take it. The shame that follows if we continue when God is so merciful as to reveal our sin and we continue in it, the shame will be so far, so much greater. The shame will be almost unbearable. But when God reveals your sin, it is the mercy. It is his mercy. He is showing you, hey, repent, turn back. Amen didn't do that, and, and his, his punishment is horrible. Now, these, these gallows, like I said, they must have been tall because they were 50 cubits high, and they said, behold, telling the king, hey, look, look out your window. See that, that thing over there? They must have been pretty close to one another. He was second in, second in command, and he lived so close to the king, he would walk there all the time, right? Well, you have these huge gallows built, and like, hey, you know that, those gallows? He built those to kill Mordecai, to kill Mordecai, the one who spoke, who spoke good on behalf of the king. So now his anger is just welling up more. This person that I honored, he is attempting to dishonor. The one that saved my life, he wants to kill. And not only kill, but he wants to shame him and put him on gallows so that the whole city of Susa can see. And the king said, that's not happening. And what does he do? He says, hang him on it. And what do we see here? It says, in verse 10, as we, as we end this chapter, it says, So they hanged Haman on the wooden gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Do we want to celebrate? We shouldn't. Seems like a moment of celebration. The death of the wicked. The death of the one that wanted to genocide all, these, all the Jews, all the people of God. We should not delight. You haven't been paying enough attention. The death death of Haman is a flailing attempt of a foolish king. He does what he can do. His anger is riled up. But guess what that killing of Haman did? Nothing. His queen is still going to be facing annihilation. Mordecai will still be facing annihilation. He cannot revoke anything. But he let his anger out. Killed the guy that made him look foolish, the one that should have been, actually, it was probably the mercy of God, showing him, hey, you're not a God. Look, look what happened. You raised this man up. You're just a man. You can't even change your old lives. You can't even protect your wife. You can't protect the people that honor you. But he's proud, and he's filled with the desire to kill Haman, and he kills Haman. But it satisfied nothing, as we said. The thing is, Haman did a, a horrible thing, but it says, it says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. This is what we should have been hoping for this whole time, seeing Haman turn away from these evil ways, how even the delay of Esther, when Esther delayed back and said, hey, I'm not going to say it tonight, and he gets out and he's happy, and he sees Mordecai. 
He had just been honored. And now he sees Mordecai again, another moment to repent. And he goes and he wants to kill him and another moment to repent. And he doesn't. And when those moments leave, there are no more moments. The eunuchs come grab you. And now there is no more repenting. When you have your last breath, there's no more repenting. Every day we have is a moment to repent of your cowardness, of your foolishness, of your brokenness, of your sin. We need, to, we need to take these moments that we have. Today is that moment. Repent if you, are, if you have not. Now, the interesting thing about Haman is that he, it says he, he decided that it was beneath him to kill Mordecai, but then he decides to kill a whole group of people? What is going on? Why would it be beneath Haman to kill Mordecai, but not beneath him to commit genocide? Because Haman wasn't committing genocide. He was hoping to commit deicide. He wanted to kill the reason that Mordecai wasn't bowing. What did Mordecai tell the other servants when they asked him, why don't you bow after days of talking to him? You know his one response? I am a Jew. I know who I am. I am a Christian. I know who I am. I don't bow to another. And when you know who you are, you're not bent by by the pressures of this world. And Haman, seeing that, he said, It's beneath me to kill this Mordecai. I need to kill his God. And how do I kill his God but but the presence of his God in our kingdom? Destroy all the Jews. If if, if I'm dealing with him now, next week he'll be another Jew that isn't bowing down to me, and the next week will be another Jew. And these Jews, they just, they cause chaos in our cities. By the way, this was being talked about him. Uh, This was was the same thing being said uh, in the New Testament about the Jews. These Jews do exceedingly trouble our cities. Why? Because they preach the truth. They stand up for what they believe in. They were preaching the gospel. Mordecai is in line with those men, these men that loved God, these these people that loved God and were not willing to bow down. So that's that's what Haman was doing. He was seeking deicide to kill the God that he probably knew about. Because once he heard from the other servants, hey, he says he's a Jew, instantly they know that servants knew what that meant. Why would they have known what that meant? They lived, they lived in Babylon, or some of them may have even, I'm not, I'm not sure about the times, there could have been old enough people that would have, that would have seen close, that would have been very close to the, uh, to the overtaking of the Persians with the, with the Babylonians. And Daniel survived through that overtaking and was lifted up by who? By Darius the Mede. By Darius the Mede. I don't know if you remember, but he said, let this be written, there's the me to Daniel, after he, he was tricked, just like the king, he told all, all of his scribes, write in every language, to every man, every, every tribe that is underneath me, let, the, let them know, do, uh, to the, by the laws of the Medes and the Persians, this cannot be revoked, and he says this, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This edict was written in their chronicles, the same chronicles that the king was listening to. Right? It's like turning on C-SPAN in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. He was just listening to his chronicles. And he found, and he found this thing that happened that he did not honor. But th- this was written there, and, it, and Haman, being part of this royal caste, this prince, was probably well aligned, well, or well acquainted with the history of Persia. They weren't, they weren't this great empire for so long. This, they're still fairly, fairly young. They have more, more Persian rulers to come. So he would have known. This is probably why Zaharish said, hey, and if he's a Jew, you're going to fall before him. Well, it's unfortunate that Haman had to die, but cowardness, cowardliness, uh, foolishness makes us blind, and we continue in our ways. But there is one that could bring light. It is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Haman is the greatest example of what not to do. Don't seek to hide when God reveals your sin. As what was talked about last time, uh, Lucas, Lucas said his friend that was caught in a sin, he said, Lean into it. Lean into it. Take responsibility. Repent. Change. Turn to God. Take off the hood. Humble yourself. 
I know everyone, want, you want to put on that hood when that sin is revealed. But take it off. Humble yourself. It's harder to say than do, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. And we're called to do it. The Bible tells us we need to reveal our sin. But we are not under the hand of a powerful fool. That's probably what may have also kept Haman from revealing his sin. He knew who he served, the king and himself, both cruel people. But we are under the hand of the faithful servant. Remember that faithful servant? The faithful servant that did not have to be asked once again to leave his throne of deity and come down as man. But he left his throne and came down as man of his own accord and he died for our sins. And when we feel like we need to die on those gallows, he tells us, you don't have to. I already died on the tree for you. You're forgiven. In Joel, two, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, and I'll leave you with this, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving devotion. He relents from sending disaster. This is what we should do. Seek out the cowardness in our, the cowardliness in our life. Seek out the foolishness and reveal it to Christ. Come to the cross and reveal it. And then live through him. We, want, we may not be like Christ in this earth perfectly, and we may find ourselves slipping into the cowardness and, or the cowardliness and into the foolishness, but what did Esther? She was fearful, but, but she was reminded by, by Mordecai, if you do nothing, our God will still protect us. He will lift up another. So be like Esther. Strive and try your hardest. Do your best. We may fumble. We may do it awkwardly. Things may not be clean. But love the Lord and stand firmly in him. He'll keep you. He now resides in us and gives us the strength to do things that no one else prior could do. The Holy Spirit resides in us. So uh, let us, let us uh, end this sermon in in a prayer, if I could lead us in a prayer, and we will end. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.